There are uh, two readings for the price of one. Uh, the first one you can find on uh, page five of the uh, Bibles in the chairs. Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 18, uh, page five. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, which he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And the uh, second reading can be found on page 1186. Eleven eighty-six. It's Ephesians chapter five, beginning at verse twenty-one. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, for I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Graham, thank you uh, for reading these for us. Uh, I should say, just uh, before we begin, um, a bit of a disclaimer that uh, although I will try not to, to go on for too long, I'm also conscious that there's so much to say, so uh, please bear with me if, this is, uh, if it feels like quite a lot to, to take in. So let's pray. I know that I need it, even if you don't. Oh, Father God, we need your wisdom so much as we consider this topic of love and marriage. Lord, we we hear so much noise in the world around us telling us what love is, what marriage is, but we're here this morning because we want to hear from you. And so we pray that you'd help us to, to tune our hearts to your word. And hearing your voice, Lord, would you give us the courage to obey it, even if in all honesty we don't understand it or if we would prefer your word to say something else. Lord, I pray for a supernatural work of your spirit here among us. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears to you. And Lord, if there's anything that is not from you in what I'm to say, Lord, may that just fall to the ground. We want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. You have the words of eternal life, Lord Jesus. Amen. In my study at home is an old trunk. Now, to be honest, it never looks that tidy, but I had to take the picture. (laughs) We bought it about 10 years ago uh, when Angie and I were living in Home Firth at the time. Uh, And the trunk, well, it has different meanings and different purposes in different contexts. So, bear with me on this, but if you were to put the the trunk uh, into the context of transport, it could be used to store things and move them from one place to another, right? However, in its current setting, my study, it's mainly used as a coffee table for uh, putting teas and coffees and usually books. although it does also house our DVD collection. Now, there are some things that would be appropriate to the trunk in one setting that would be inappropriate to the trunk in another setting. 
So if I put coasters on the trunk in my study, that makes sense, because we use it for, for holding teas and coffees. If I was to put coasters on the, tr on the trunk when it's uh, in, a uh, in, a, in a train or a plane being transported somewhere, would that make sense? No. And so the point I'm trying to make, just with that illustration, is that we understand things best when we consider the bigger story of which there are parts. And in order to see the, the biblical vision of human sexuality, we have to look at it within that bigger biblical picture. If the frame with which we look at marriage is one of a modern, a secular, liberal democracy, then marriage will almost certainly look like uh, the mutual self-fulfillment of its partners where feelings of love are, or attraction are at its essence. And in that context, it makes absolutely no sense to exclude some relationships with that at its heart. However, when set within the larger context of the Christian story, the meaning of marriage takes on a different hue. Some things appropriate to the first aren't to the second. And so the philosopher Alistair McIntyre explains, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? The story determines how we respond to it. So our, our thoughts and our actions, they come out of a worldview, of our understanding of what life is all about, what a life well-lived looks like, what story we think we're living in. And one way of seeing the world will lead us to one set of conclusions about how to live. And another way of seeing the world will lead us to a different set of conclusions about how to live. So let me give a really silly example. I love board games. What's the point of a board game? To win. Thank you. Someone after my own heart. Now, Angie would tell me, wrongly of course, that it's to... <laughs> that it's to have fun. It's completely not the point of a board game. Um, but the chances are, the way you think about what a board game is there for will affect the way that you play. So because Angie thinks it's primarily about fun, she will let the kids win. I don't think I need to say the rest of that sentence, do I? <laughs> think of the satisfaction they have when they actually beat me on merit. Um, <laughs> but the same is true in, in all other areas of life as well. If we think the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever then our choices about how to live will look different from those who think the purpose of life is pursuing whatever we think will make us happy. And so the problem is that most of us don't actually think we've got a worldview. So when Angie and I first met and started dating, I used to tease her that I don't have an accent. Because obviously I don't, do I? She's the one with the accent, not me. 
obviously that's a complete lie. We all have an accent. The thing is, we don't usually recognize our accent, mainly because it's normal to us. I've been speaking it for, since I was born. And quite often, not all the time, uh, and I know Angie will feel this more uh, uh, than, than, than some others, and others will as well, but quite often we're surrounded by people who speak the same way as well. Not all the time, like I said. There'll be, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be others, like you, Roberta, as well, Niverne, a few others, perhaps uh, kind of those from, even from Scotland or Wales. People don't speak the same. Oh, Northern Ireland, sorry. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so the accent, if you like, of the modern Western world is secular humanism. And its assumptions are everywhere, even in the church. But because we're surrounded by them, we don't hear the accent. It's part of the air we breathe every day. Accent? I don't hear an accent. And so the challenge for us is to have a biblical worldview, to speak with a biblical accent, to think ourselves into God's story, and to learn to see our lives through his lenses. And so the goal of this short uh, three-part sermon series, therefore, is to try and put our questions about love and marriage and divorce and singleness into that bigger biblical story. And more than that, I want to help us, uh, God willing, to think Christianly. To think like people who live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To think like people who are taught by God. I want to help us think like people who are shaped by this book. And you see, the fact is that we actually all have lots of teachers. And I don't just mean someone who stands up in the front of a, a class uh, teaching kids. We're taught by our parents. We're taught by uh, and discipled by our friends, by our playmates, by the books we read, by the TV shows we watch. We start to take on their habits, their ideas, their patterns of behavior. And our job as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, is to be discipled by Jesus, to learn his way of life. And so, as Christians, our basic creed is Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, we don't get to decide which of his teachings we keep and which we junk. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if we take one tiny little bit of the Bible, the least stroke of a pen and ignore it or explain it away or perform some interpretive gymnastics to make it say whatever we want it to say, we'll relegate ourselves to the margins of God's kingdom. And when we do this, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, worshipping a God of our own creation, not the creator God himself. And so we've got a, a really stark choice if we take the Bible and, and Jesus' teachings on the Bible and those of his inspired apostles, and then we say, well, actually, I know better. 
It's really hard to square that with saying that Jesus is our Lord. So the primal sin of Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden was seeking to free themselves from God, to define good and evil for themselves. God gave them a very simple instruction, obey me about the tree and live. Disobey me about the tree and die. And God told Adam and Eve what the good life was. His word was the good life. But they wanted to define it for themselves. And it's the archetypal sin of humanity to say to the God who made us, I know better than you. Well, just look at the world around us. How's that working out for us? St. Ignatius of Loyola said, Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I love that. And until we're convinced of that, we'll keep our hands on the steering wheel of our lives, thinking we know better than God what we need for our own happiness and fulfillment. And as we think about love and marriage and divorce and singleness, at its heart, I just want us to I want to beg us, I want to beseech us, please, let's trust God. Don't listen to the snake's voice, which says he's telling you not to eat the fruit of the tree because he doesn't really love you. Trust, please, that his vision of human sexuality is the most fulfilling vision of human sexuality that there is. I remember a few years ago, a blog post in which parents were encouraged to take photographs when their kids, when they were crying, uh, alongside captions uh, of some of the reasons why. There are some great ones on there. Here are just a couple. She's not allowed to drink toilet bowl cleaner. And this one. I put his hood up when it got chilly. Any parents in the room had, had experiences like that? Friends, we're so often like that with God. Please trust that he's not a killjoy, but rather that he's out to kill the things that kill our joy in him. And so uh, it's important to stress that what I'm going to say, not just this week, but over the next couple of weeks, is also primarily for the family of faith. So if you're, uh, if you're not a believer here this morning, you've just walked in uh, today for the first time uh, and you're wondering what on earth this is all about, um, then you're really welcome, but this is primarily for the family. Now, in the, in the armed forces of many countries, including our own, uh, you can be court-martialed for conduct unbecoming an officer, which is defined as uh, behavior that harms the standing or a, uh, a profession or office in the eyes of others. Now, can a civilian, I'm assuming we're all civilians here, I don't think I know any, um, but can a civilian like you or me be court-martialed? Why not? Because we're not in the army. Yeah, absolutely. Similarly, we shouldn't be expecting non-Christians to live by Christian standards, okay? Rather, it's those who know God's word who have the greater responsibility to live by it. 
And as Christians, we have a different story, a different set of values. Uh, In Colossians 1, uh, verse 10, Paul encourages us to live a life worthy of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It means that there is a life unworthy of the Lord. There is such a thing that exists. Conduct unbecoming a Christian. And that's surely anything that goes against God's revealed will, giving a false image of who he is and what he's like. Now, I know uh, that that's a really, really long introduction, a lot of throat clearing, but I think it's important that we set the scene properly because obviously the issues around love and human sexuality is such a big hot potato, uh, especially in the church at the moment. And so from the outset... Again, another disclaimer, I'm not going to cover everything exhaustively in three messages, unless you want me to be here for uh, 24 hours a time, which I'm assuming most of you don't. And even then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Not even close. But what I want to do is paint a picture that will help us glimpse God's vision for human sexuality. Now, I'm really aware... Uh, And I'm standing here with fear and trembling, knowing that this isn't abstract. We're not just talking about ideas here. This is a really sensitive topic. Because for many of us in this room, we will have experienced pain, brokenness firsthand in in this area. This is real, this is raw. It's not just ideas. And I'm also really aware that it may challenge our our, uh, preconceived or deeply held ideas in this area as well. Uh, And so if you've got your rotten tomatoes with you, uh, there'll be an opportunity later in the service to throw them at me. But my, my overriding goal is to try and show us what God wants in the belief that what God wants is truly our deepest happiness. So today we're going to focus on marriage. Next week we're going to focus on uh, divorce. And the week after that we're going to focus on singleness. So today, what's the meaning of marriage in the bigger biblical narrative? Over these three weeks, uh, we're going to try and cover quite a lot of ground. That's why we've had uh, two Bible readings as well. Because I just want to try and fill out as much of the picture as possible. I'll seek to also try and draw in other, other passages where they're appropriate. So in particular, uh, we're going to look at those two readings that, we've, uh, that Graham read for us, uh, and we're probably going to focus more on Genesis 2 than uh, Ephesians 5 today. But I want us to notice three things uh, that the Bible says about marriage. First, that marriage is God's design. Second, that it's God's doing. And third, that it's for God's display. And the first thing to say about marriage is simply this. Marriage is God's idea, not us. Marriage isn't just a human construct. It was part of his intention in the creation of the world. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, just take a look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a a helper suitable for him. Who is it that says that the man's solitude is not a good thing? 
God. Okay? Who is it who will make an appropriate uh, companion for the man? God. And I know this is going to stray into something that's going to be controversial to some, but I think it's important for us just to, to, to look at it. The being that God makes to be perfectly suited to the man is a woman. The Hebrew word behind the English translation, suitable for him, uh, is kenegdo. Can you say that? Kenegdo. And it literally means like opposite him. It's a really, it's a unique word. So the ke bit means like, uh, the neg, negd bit means uh, opposite, and the o bit means him. Kenegdo. Like him, but opposite him. So God designed marriage to be the union of one man and one woman, a union of difference. Unless we think this is just some weird Old Testament thing that we could ignore, Jesus himself, when he's asked about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, first quotes Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female, before then going on to quote Genesis 2.24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You know, it's sometimes said that uh, Jesus never says anything relevant to the same-sex marriage debate that's going on in the church. I'm afraid that's just not true. This is relevant to it. Jesus doesn't have to go back to Genesis 1 to say that God made humanity male and female he doesn't have to do that but he does because as far as he's concerned marriage is between a man and a woman and there's something important in the otherness of Eve to Adam the biblical text literally says that God takes one of Adam's sides uh, in lots of our translations it would just say a rib actually the the, the Hebrew just means a, a side to form the woman. Adam, whose name literally means humanity, is split into two, male and female. And therefore, God's design for marriage is that one becomes two, becomes one again. There is an inherent complementarity about God's design for marriage. Man and woman are designed to work together, to fit together a bit like pieces of a jigsaw. And the point of the story of Adam naming all the animals isn't that God thinks that a hippo might be a good companion for Adam, but it's rather to highlight the point. What does he need? He needs one like him. And similarly, God says it's not good. And so just think about the... the, the, the Genesis 1 and the creation story. What's the refrain that keeps coming throughout Genesis 1? God looked at what he'd made and he said, it was good. This is the first time something is not good. And it's not good for Adam to be alone because alone, Adam can't be fruitful and multiply. So let's go back to Genesis 1:27 for a moment. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the point is that men and women together make up the representation of God in the world. 
And what's more, the, the word that the story uses to describe the woman is very significant. So the English word that's most commonly used here is helper. And frankly, that's a really unhelpful translation. The, the Hebrew word azer, you say that azer? It's actually a lot stronger than that. It's a word that's uh, used most often in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. Um, and it's, a better translation is probably ally, one who comes to your aid in your time of need. So let's just get rid of any, uh, any, any male uh, chauvinistic ideas that, uh, that, that a woman is kind of the assistant. You know, go get me a coffee. No, that is not what it means. Eve rescues Adam. Throughout Genesis 1, when God declares something good, it means that it was functioning as he intended it to function. And so the statement that it's not good for man to be alone is saying that he doesn't work properly without her. Um, Male and female together are made in God's image to rule the world and to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I know that that will, in itself, probably raise some questions, especially for those who are single uh, here listening. What Are you saying that I'm defective because I'm not married? No, hear me, I am categorically not saying that. Not at all. And you're going to have to listen to the end to hear why. But procreation, or at least the possibility of it, and an attitude of welcome to new life is absolutely crucial to the biblical vision of marriage. And we also see something else very important about God's design for marriage in these verses. It's meant to be a complementary union characterized by mutual commitment. So procreation doesn't require mutual commitment. It doesn't in the animal world, for instance. The man must leave his parents, though, it says here, and cleave, that is, uh, cling to, stick to his wife. Actually, in the Old Testament, it was usually um, the, the, the woman who left her family to join her husband's family. In, in terms of literally, the woman would, would, would move into the, 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 uh, the, man's, the man's house. But that isn't the point that's being made here. The point is that there is a definitive break between the old life and a joining together, a creation of something new. The union God envisages is a whole life union. For the, la- for the man to leave and cleave means for him to put his wife first, to transfer his primary affection, his primary commitment, his primary loyalty from his parents to his wife. Husband and wife belong to each other. So let's move on to the second point. Uh, Marriage is God's doing. So we've seen that one becomes two, becomes one again. In marrying a woman, the man finds a missing part of himself, which complements and in a sense completes him. So marriage is God's design in creating humanity, male and female. But more than that, we see that marriage is God's doing. God was the first father of the bride. So 
If you've got your Bible open, look with me at verse 22 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib or the side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Did you catch that? He walks Eve down the aisle. God gave Eve to Adam. God didn't make the woman, then hide her somewhere in the garden and say to Adam, go find her. He brought her to him because he intended their union. And that's what comes out in verse 24. God intended man and woman to unite and become one flesh. Marriage is God's doing because God speaks this design into being. When Jesus quotes verse 24 in Matthew 19... He says that it is God who speaks these words. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, who's doing the saying? The creator. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In other words, God's saying, this is my idea. God speaks the authoritative pattern of marriage into being. The mutually committed, one flesh union of one man and one woman. And if marriage is not just God's design, but God's doing, what that means is we're not free to redefine marriage however we want. If the pattern of marriage is instituted by God in creation, then he is the one who sets its terms. Not us. But there's more. You see, marriage is God's doing also because he is the one who joins husband and wife together. That's implicit in verse 24, but Jesus makes it explicit when he refers to it in uh, Matthew 19. Because after quoting verse 24, Jesus then adds his interpretation. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriages are performed by God. I don't perform a marriage. God performs the marriage. Andrew Randall writes that the miracle of marriage is that God himself reaches down and takes two separate lives and forges from them one flesh. Two people, like but opposite to one another, are brought together in an act of union that is sacred. And the implications of this extend far beyond the question of whether two men or two women can marry each other, biblically speaking. Because when God joins a man and a woman together in the one flesh union of marriage, he intends their union to be permanent and lifelong. When a man and a woman marry, their union has a deep connection with God. Marriage is greater than the sum of its parts. It's about more than the two individuals involved. In fact, it's our failure to realize um, that which leads us, I think, to treat marriage so casually. If you're married, it's important for you to realize that your marriage doesn't belong to you. God joins husband and wife together. And he does that by adding his yes to their yes to one another. His yes turns their yes 
from love into a marriage. And so marriage is more than a couple's love for one another. It's a participation in God's creative purposes for the world. And that's why the author of the letter to the Hebrews says this in uh, chapter 13, verse 4. He says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Sex is a gift from God. But the proper place for sexual intimacy is within the permanent one flesh union of marriage. The one flesh union of marriage is about more than sex. It's the union of the whole person, one to the other. At the heart, it's about radical and total self-giving. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I am, I share with you. Sex is so precious So precious that the only right place for it is within the context of the full giving of ourselves to the one to whom we belong. Becoming one flesh, physical oneness, must go alongside leaving and cleaving to the other. In other words, the legal, the spiritual, the emotional, the financial union. Sexual intimacy is meant to be the crowning symbol of man and woman's oneness. So to isolate it from that whole life self-giving of one to another is actually to cheapen it, to degrade it, to prostitute it. That's why the Bible consistently calls for faithfulness inside of marriage and abstinence outside of it. Contrary to the popular opinion... Christianity doesn't have a negative view of sex. Quite the opposite, in fact. Sex is so precious that its value mustn't be cheapened outside of marriage. God invented sex, not as a means of gratifying ourselves or expressing ourselves, but of revealing ourselves and giving ourselves away to another. And this leads us to the the third point this morning. Marriage exists for the display of God's glory. Marriage is fundamentally about God more than it's about the happy couple. We see hints of that in this reading from Genesis 2, but the Apostle Paul brings it out into the open for us in Ephesians 5. But let's start with the hints first of all. The first hint that is that the woman whom God has made is called an azer or an ally, most frequently used of God. Why is that what, important? Well, it means in some sense the woman is meant to reflect God to the man. The way she helps, the way she comes alongside is meant to be a picture of the divine ally that we all need. The primal sin of Adam and Eve is trying to go it alone in the world without God, but it's not good for humanity to be alone in the world. And the second hint is in verse 24 of Genesis 2, where the man is described as leaving father and mother to be united to his wife. And the, the word united there is the Hebrew word divak, which means to hold fast to or to join to. And this is covenant language. The man and the woman bind themselves to each other through the making of promises. Now, most people today think that the essence of marriage is romantic love. But the essence of Christian marriage is covenant. 
the unwavering commitment of one for the other, to the other, uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us depart. Feelings of love may lead a man and a woman uh, to make those promises to one another on their wedding day, but it's the promise of future love that forms the basis of their marriage. The promise sustains the love, not the other way around. You know, I never, when I take a, take a wedding, I never stand, stand here and ask the, the, the bride and the groom, uh, Simon, do you take Elizabeth? Oh, sorry, si- Simon, do you love Elizabeth? I never ask that. What do I ask? Will you? Will you? Will you love Elizabeth? Elizabeth, will you love Simon? It's an act of the will. It's not about what you feel at the moment. And that's not to say that feelings don't matter. Yes, of course they matter, but they're not the defining feature. The promise is the defining feature. And that's one of the things I have to say that's uh, so uh, sad uh, about uh, all the stuff that's come up about uh, Philip Schofield is that that sense that his, his realization of his, uh, his attractiveness to, to other men left him to abandon his wife of 27 years and the covenant promises that he'd made as if they don't matter. Paul quotes um, Genesis 2, 24 uh, in Ephesians 5, and he explains, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Those words are crucial for us because they underline that the ultimate purpose of marriage isn't self-fulfillment. It's not even the procreation and nurture of children. The ultimate purpose is to be a sign of the self-giving, covenant-keeping love of Christ for his people. It's no accident that there's a marriage on page one of the Bible and a marriage on the last page of the Bible. Every marriage is meant to be a signpost to humanity's ultimate union with God. And that's why we mustn't idolize marriage. Because in, even, in any marriage, even the very best, it's penultimate, it's not ultimate. Jesus is our true spouse. He's our true lover. God instituted marriage between a man and a woman to be a picture of his love for us. Now, every human marriage is meant to point us toward the ultimate marriage of Christ and the church, the coming together of heaven and earth. Every human marriage is charged with both the privilege and the responsibility of the man and woman representing Christ's love for his people to a watching world. And that's what makes divorce and remarriage so tragic because it misrepresents Christ because Christ never breaks his promises 
He never leaves his bride. We may be unfaithful to him, but he is never unfaithful to us. He loves us not simply till death us to part, but to death itself, so that we might never be parted now and into all eternity. Now, I am not in any way seeking to uh, say that if, if someone here is divorced today, that it's your fault. Because God knows your situations much better than anyone else. A marriage is made up of two people. And so being divorced in itself is no reason for, for shame. There's nothing inherently shameful about being divorced. There are all kinds of reasons. And both parties need to be equally committed to God's vision for marriage in order for it to work. And sometimes, sadly, that's just not the case. Rather, what I'm trying to say, though, is that, sadly, I think the, the statistics that show that there is just as much divorce among Christian married people as among non-Christian married people might perhaps signal that we haven't quite understood fully what it's all about. And that's the fault of ministers like me failing to communicate the grandeur of the biblical vision. And I believe that one of the reasons why the church is in such a muddle over marriage right now is because we've forgotten what it's for. We've swallowed the lie that's been peddled by the world around us that it's essentially about fulfilling our desires for romantic love. And we've forgotten that the ultimate purpose is to point people to Jesus and his covenant love for his people. So we've said that marriage is God's design, it's God's doing, and it exists for God's display. And so let's just take a moment to think through some of the implications of this. First, I think it means that we all need to take marriage a lot more seriously than most of us typically do. If you're married here this morning, I want you to know that your marriage is much bigger than you and your spouse. Your marriage is about living in such a way that it points people to Jesus' self-giving love for his bride, the church. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but this bigger biblical vision of marriage also reminds us not to idolize it. We need to hear that it's perfectly possible to live a perfectly happy, fulfilled life without being married. That is possible. Jesus did. And our married people are not second-class citizens. Marriage is like a trailer for a film. But the film itself is the bride's union with Jesus. The second, because marriage was instituted by God in creation as the lifelong, exclusive, and faithful union of one man and one woman that points forward to Christ's covenant love for the church, I don't see how we can redefine marriage any other way. No matter what it's termed as by the laws of the land or wider society. I, as much as 
I'd love to be able to, to, to say something else in lots of ways. I honestly believe that same-sex marriage is incompatible with the biblical vision of what marriage is and what it's for. Now, I want to be absolutely clear about this because I don't want anyone to hear what I'm saying and misrepresent it or misunderstand it. We are are called to represent God's love to all people, including those who experience same-sex attraction. We condemn no one. Homophobia is completely unacceptable. Full stop. Contrary to the impression that has sometimes tragically been given, God does not hate gays. He does not. It's not true. And yet, as same-sex attracted Christian Andrew Bunt writes, to be a follower of Jesus is to submit to him in our thinking and our living. Any person who wants to take following Jesus seriously has to take what he says here seriously when considering the topic of same-sex relationships. And so the pickle that the Western church has got itself into in its debates on this topic is that it's presented a half-truth as the whole truth, which has led to it becoming an untruth. It's true that we're saved entirely by grace through faith and not by anything we do. That is wonderfully, gloriously true, but it's only half the story. Because the call to faith is accompanied by a call to repent. In other words, to live in keeping with this salvation. By reducing the gospel to pithy statements like all are welcome or God loves everyone is actually to distort it. Now, those statements are both true. Absolutely. God does love everyone. But his love is a love that wants the best for us and isn't content to leave us in our sin. All are welcome to repent and receive the good news. Preaching forgiveness without repentance is cheap grace. Because God's grace isn't just about putting sin right. It's about putting sinners like me right. Now, let's, let's be clear that I think that many of those pressing for change in the church, I, I think they honestly have really good motives. I think they want to express God's wide welcome. They don't want to put obstacles in people's way from them meeting Jesus. But we can't do that in a way that denies the very real demands of discipleship. The third, third thing I hope we can see this morning, uh, that the implications of what we've talked about are far, more, uh, far wider reaching um, than the question of same-sex marriage. Same-sex sexual activity uh, is not the only sin, nor is it by a million miles the worst sin when it comes to a biblical vision of human sexuality. The Bible's vision of love and marriage challenges all of us, I believe, in different ways. It says that the only appropriate place for sex is within the covenant of marriage. So C.S. Lewis writes that the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. And, And likewise, The biblical vision also says that 
Divorce isn't just a simple readjustment of partners with no real consequence, but it's a violence so severe as to be like cutting up a single living organism. And above all, what I think we need to see and hear is the marriage that's on the last page of the Bible. The marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. We, we live in a society that tries to persuade us that our sexual desires are irresistible and that to try and resist them would be unhealthy for us. That we can't be fully human if we're not having sex with whomever we want. Biblically speaking, I think that's just a lie. Jesus was the happiest person who ever walked the face of this planet. And he never had sex. Sex won't satisfy our ultimate desire. Rather, our longing for sexual intimacy is a sign that we were made for a deeper kind of intimacy. To know Christ is better than sex. It's better than marriage. He alone can complete us. He alone can make us whole. And so I just want to finish uh, by reading these words from, from the end of Revelation. Revelation 19, uh, 6 to 9. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Friends, you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that what you want for us is only our deepest happiness. Help us to trust that. Please help us to trust that more deeply. Especially when the, the world around us it keeps subtly telling us to look inside ourselves to find fulfillment. Lord, thank you that there is that vision of a wedding on the final page of, of the Bible between you and your bride, the church. We thank you for paying our dowry in your blood. And we pray that we would press on to that wedding day with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.